Well, friends, if you would, turn in your copies of Scripture with me to Matthew chapter 28. We are in Matthew chapter 28 this morning as we continue in our sacrament series. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 16 through 20. Before we jump into this, let me give you the key truth that I'm hoping we will walk away with from this particular passage of Scripture. It is this. Jesus has given us baptism to visibly teach us who and whose we are as the new covenant people of God. Jesus has given us baptism to visibly teach us who and whose we are as the new covenant people of God. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. To me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, a question I have for us right as we dive into this is uh, this. What rites of passage have been critical to you to the transition between various seasons of life? What rites of passage have been critical to the, various, to the transition between various seasons of life? We can think of a couple, right? Uh, usually getting your driver's license is sort of a rite of passage. It, it kind of symbolizes your growing independence, and it's an exciting time. Others that we can mention are graduating high school or graduating college and getting your first big adult job in the world. Uh, others would be getting married and having children or later in life becoming an empty nester. There are various rites of passage that sort of symbolize that you've arrived in a new season of life and there are new things to think about, new things to, to do, and in a sense, a new way to be in the world, a new calling that you've been given. Rites of passage like these often take the form of, of memories that reinforce for us our identity they help us to be sure that we really have arrived at a new stage of life, and they serve as sort of badges to help us know our own identity and make sense of our story in the world. Well, in a similar way, I hope you're beginning to notice, like me, that it is really kind of impossible to grow in your understanding of the sacraments that Jesus has given to the church without also growing in your understanding of the biblical story. We have to see how these things help us to become a part of the story that Jesus has written in the world, the story that he's told in the Bible. So in that way, in order to become better people who appreciate and apply and live out what the sacraments teach us, we have to become better biblical theologians, people who see the story of the Bible as a unity and how, how it relates to our individual lives and all the things that we have going on in our lives. And that's what biblical theology aims to do to understand how all the various parts of Scripture, all the various parts of the Bible, contribute to its meaning as a whole. And as I've said, sacraments in this way help us to be placed right into the center of the biblical story. It's as if to say, we may struggle to see how the story, the biblical story of creation and fall and redemption and restoration, we can sometimes really struggle to see how that fits into our lives. Think about it. Just this past week, we've gone back to school. It seemed that the summer just flew by, and we're thrust right back into the hurly-burly of life. And when we're in the middle of all that, sometimes it can be a real struggle to see how does creation and fall and redemption and restoration make sense of my experience in this new busy season of life. Well, the sacraments place us right into the thick of it. 
And so we're really going to have a difficult time understanding what the sacraments teach us unless we also grow in our understanding of the biblical And we need also this centering point of reference, don't we? Uh, unless we were are, are, are really to avoid getting a, a sort of spiritual whiplash. Because we've been in Genesis 17 last week, and now we're all the way forward in the biblical story to Matthew 28. And so we might be thinking, all right, well, how do we make sense of all these pieces? What is the center point of reference that helps me to see how these particular flashpoints in the biblical story illustrate a wider thing that God would have us to learn about the sacraments and about our place in the world? Well, remember, Genesis 17 taught us the covenant sign of circumcision as the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. God appeared to Abraham right, as Cameron said last week, right at the very moment when we would have thought in that point of the story that Abraham had just messed up so irretrievably. He'd cast out, the, as far as he knew, the covenant child out of his household. The family dysfunction was just too much for him to bear. So he cast away Ishmael. And we would have assumed, given that point, if we were in the story there ourselves, given that point, we would have assumed, well, that's just it. What, what, there is, what is there more to say? And yet God comes and appears before Abraham and says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. It's part of that grand story that we see so often in the Old Testament, in fact, all throughout the whole scripture, that God's mercy follows his judgment, that our sin seems to almost make shipwreck, almost irretrievable shipwreck of the story. And God comes in great mercy and condescension and compassion and says, I am God Almighty, be blameless and walk before me. And of course, as part of that, then, he gives Abraham this sign, this visible representation of what it meant that he would be the, the, the one who was given the promise to carry on that great promise that was given to Eve, that there would be a seed of the woman who would come to save humanity from their sins, and that God would make of Abraham a mighty nation. In fact, through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so Abraham was to carry through the generations this covenant sign of circumcision as a visible representation of what that meant for him. And not only for him and for his own family, but for the entirety of the world, as God blessed the world through that promise to him. Now we come in Matthew chapter 28 to the sign, the initiatory rite of the new covenant, baptism. Circumcision in, in Genesis 17 served as a sort of initiatory rite. That, all that means is the way in which we knew that we were in. The thing that, that, that helps us to, to see that we've begun in a new way, a sort of rite of passage. We've begun to identify not as the old life that we once lived in, but as a new kind of people, the people of God. And now in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus introduces baptism as the initiatory rite of the new covenant. And don't forget that it's just as Paul called circumcision in Galatians chapter 3, the gospel preached beforehand to Abraham, so now in Matthew chapter 28, the gospel come in full in the person of Jesus Christ is the gospel made visible to us. And baptism in that way is the further and more complete sign of our, our, our season of life. And as the words of as Jesus says, in a new age, in a new age in which he is our Lord and we are his. So this leads us to consider more completely how Matthew unfolds this baptism, how Matthew helps us to understand what it really means for us. And I particularly love this passage in Matthew. I think it is wonderful. And I, I, I really wonder how many of us, if we were to have to answer the question, name a, a familiar passage in Matthew, how many of us would not immediately land in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission? Maybe for some of us, we could think of the uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And that might be coming a close second. But for most of us, when we think of Matthew, we think of the Great Commission. 
And there's a good reason for that. It's only in Matthew's gospel that we have these words of Jesus. Now, now typically, we hear these words in the context of our missionary enterprise, the great missionary responsibility that King Jesus has laid upon the church. It's a wonderful text to preach on when we're sending out missionaries or we're hearing updates from the missionaries that we support who are out in foreign lands. It's a wonderful text to preach on when we are considering the call that God may have laid upon our lives to go out into an unknown place to preach the gospel where Jesus has not yet been named. But it's also, and probably more importantly, a passage to remind us of the kind of king that Jesus is, the kind of savior that Jesus is, and, concomitant with that, the kind of people that he has made us. Because that is Matthew's chief burden here. Yes, it is, the words here are great, and yes, they are a commission, but more than that, Matthew wants us to see how Jesus, or, or rather, what Jesus is as the resurrected Savior. There's a reason why, in the, at the end of Matthew, the only post-resurrection appearance of Jesus is this commissioning here. Matthew has no interest in what happens to Peter. Matthew has no interest in what happens to the women who came to the tomb early on that Sunday morning and were the first witnesses of his resurrection. Matthew has no interest in what happens to Thomas and his doubting disbelief. No, the one resurrection appearance that we have of Jesus here is when he appears to the disciples to give them these words and this commission. And oh, what a commission it is. We could just think of the, the verve and the vitality of these words that Jesus gives. It's as if to say, I really am alive. I really am powerful. I really am with you. I mean, I mean the, the, the words here are wonderful. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. The conviction there, the confidence there is amazing. Or even more tender and wonderful. Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. We could just repeat those words to ourselves and almost have the benediction because they're so sweet to the very end of the age. And even think about that language too, the very end of the age. How Jesus invites us to reconsider with renewed and redeemed imaginations the kind of world that we live in. The world that we live in is passing away. It's coming to a close. The world that we're so familiar with is not the way that things are meant to be forever. But Jesus is with us to the very end of the age. But these are words that mean more than just that. They teach us who and whose we are as Jesus' beloved people. And this, at the end of the day, dear friends, is the substance of baptism. So Matthew chapter 28 is not just merely the end of the gospel, with an application sort of tacked on at the end of it. It's the climax of Matthew's gospel. And the chief significance of these words here is that they carry to us the central implications of this truth. The Lord Jesus is risen. These words carry to us the central implications of that truth. The Lord Jesus is risen. And so that's why Matthew seems so uninterested in the other post-resurrection accounts of Jesus that we could name from the other Gospels. He moves directly to this first announcement of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, he moves immediately to Galilee. Don't miss that. That's an important detail here. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 3 what Jesus does after his baptism and after his trial in the wilderness? He retires to Galilee. And so the very first sort of announcement of Jesus' activity in the world 
as his activity as the coming Messiah, his ministry, to announce that and to let people know who and whose they are and who he is as the coming Redeemer is to retire to Galilee. And and so you kind of see here that Matthew's gospel is really bookended by Jesus' ministry in Galilee. It begins in Galilee, and now even though he's been crucified and resurrected in Jerusalem, he retires with with his disciples to Galilee. So it's bookended by this ministry in Galilee. And what does that communicate to us? that everything in between is needful for us to know, if we're to understand Jesus. So Matthew's using this as a way to sort of highlight for us that we need to pay particular attention to the gospel, that Jesus' resurrection is not just a resurrection so that we can say, okay, well, he's, he's raised from the grave, that's great, I can trust in him, job done. But no, if he's began his ministry in Galilee his, and he has ended his ministry in Galilee, everything that's happened in Galilee is needful for us to know. We have to pay attention to it. And so, friends, this might seem like a a minor point to you, but think about how that impacts our view of baptism. So often, I think, we can tend to view baptism as sort of something that we do to cleanse a guilty conscience or something that we can do to, to let people know that we really are following Jesus, but we can almost sort of divorce it from the gospel as a whole. We can really divorce it from the continuing need to lean into the gospel, and to to understand it better, to walk with Jesus as we learn more about his ministry. And the word emphasis on Galilee helps us to know that Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospel of Matthew, and indeed throughout the whole of the Gospels of Mark and Luke and John, are needful for us to know, to know what kind of Savior Jesus is, and therefore what baptism we have been baptized into. Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, therefore, highlights for us his ministry as having abiding significance for us, his people. But notice also that Jesus directs his disciples to meet him on a mountain. That's not a throwaway detail either. That's very significant. You remember that for Matthew, one of the big emphases is that he wants us to see Jesus as the prophet who is greater than the prophet Moses. And what did Moses do? Moses went up on a mountain, there to give the people the revelation of God. And that's very significant all throughout Matthew's detailing of the ministry and life of Jesus. We, we could name the most famous mountain sermon, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes up to a mountain there to be the prophet who is greater than Moses, to give his people an understanding, here is who God is, and here is what he commands of you. And so now, at the end of his earthly ministry here, before his ascension to the Father, he meets his people on a mountain to be the prophet who is greater than Moses, to bring them the revelation of God. And more than that, there his disciples worship him. For for a first century Jew, this would have been a shocking thing. We're we're kind of used to it, and it's good that we're used to it, because we should be people who worship Jesus, and we should be unembarrassed about that. But for a first century Jew, this would have been a shocking thing. Sometimes you may, like me, kind of go through your Bible. You're worried that the Jehovah's Witness may one day knock on your door and you'll have to defend the divinity of Jesus. And you're like, well, where would I go in Scripture? Your, your mind, you're worried it will go blank. It's a good place to go right here because there the disciples worship Jesus. And that's a shocking thing. Why would they do this on a mountain knowing how significant that was for the ancient Israelite people? That they would go to Mount Sinai and there worship the Lord the, the, the Jehovah, God himself. And so now as the disciples come to this mountain to worship Jesus, this is in effect saying, you are the Lord. You are the one that we ought to give all of our allegiance to, all of our love to. You are the one that we were made for. So the disciples here worship him. But there's this curious detail as well. Some doubted. 
Now, I don't think this means that some were unconvinced that Jesus had really risen from the grave. They saw him. They couldn't deny that. I think what it means is they were shaky about the implications of it. And we can be shaky about the implications of Jesus' resurrection as well. In other words, they were shaky about whether Jesus' resurrection really had changed anything, whether it had really done enough to change the world, to change their own hearts, to change the whole course of history, whether it really was true that he would be with them, therefore, to the very end of the age. Some doubted. And to earth has been given to me. One of Matthew's, or at least one of Jesus' favorite designations for himself in the Gospel of Matthew is the Son of Man. And that has resonance in the biblical story. It particularly calls to mind Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7 of one like a Son of Man who rises up and is given a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, to whom all the other nations of the world must bow. And so in the Jewish imagination, the coming Messiah would be like that, the one who would, be, who would form a kingdom and be a kingdom to whom all the other nations of the world must bow. And so when Jesus says here, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he's calling to mind that he is the son of man who's been given that kingdom. So to our doubts, like we may have sometimes like the disciples here, whether or not the resurrection of Jesus has actually changed anything, Jesus says to us, I am the Son of Man. All authority has been given in heaven and on earth to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. The, the, the ground of our own discipleship and the ground of our calling in the, world to, in, the, in the world to be disciples who make disciples is the authority of Jesus, which has been given to him. All authority in heaven and on earth. So there is not one square inch, as Abraham Kuyper said, that does not cry out, Lord, bow before, or, or, or bow before the Lord. Come and know him. Come and worship him. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And we are therefore to go and to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that, they, all that Jesus has commanded us. Now this is important for us also. We're to give Jesus our unremitting obedience. Often we can be shaky here too. Are there areas of our lives in which we are unwilling to give Jesus our obedience? Are there areas of our lives in which we're afraid that following him in the course of obedience may cost us too much? Are there areas of our lives in which we're afraid that his resurrection power isn't enough at the end of the day to overcome the things that we're afraid of, so that we need to find safety and security somewhere else? To this Jesus says, once again, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, obey me. It's very interesting that the call to obedience is not grounded in moral effort so that we, by our own strength, can make ourselves better or make our world better. No, the call to obedience is grounded in Jesus' own authority, in who he is. And again, we may wonder, what does this have to do with baptism? But we need to see very clearly how our baptisms help us to grow in our discipleship because we've been made a new kind of people. We've been called away from our former way of life, are doing things in our own strength, in our, going our own way, and called to him to walk in obedience before him. Thus, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. The Jewish people in Exodus 3 had an encounter with God. Abraham, or Moses there says, Lord, how am I to say to the people your name? How am I to say who you are? 
And there God says to, Ab- to Moses, I am who I am. And the, Jew- the, the Jewish people for a long time were so afraid of pronouncing that name that they lost the ability to pronounce it. So we say today Jehovah sometimes because that's a Latin translation or we say Yahweh. We're not quite sure that that's how you say it. But notice here how Jesus teaches us to say that name. When he tells us, baptizing them in the name, he does not mean, here's just a name that I came up with on the fly. What he means is, in that name, the name of God Almighty, the name of the God who appeared to Israel in Exodus chapter 3. You remember in John 18, from our sermon series in Easter a couple weeks ago, or a couple months ago now, in John 18, when the Roman authorities come to arrest Jesus, And they say to him, are you the one that we're looking for? And he says, I am. And immediately they fall down before him because that name has a resonance. He is the one who appeared to Israel in Exodus chapter 3. And so the people that we, the Jewish people who had forgotten how to pronounce this name, here Jesus tells us, here is how you are to pronounce it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is why it is so important for us to hear what Jesus says after that. I am with you always. The Greek words here that are translated here, I am, for English, in our English translation, are the very Greek words that show up in Exodus chapter 3 as I am, and in John 18 as I am. Jesus is the I am who, we're to, who we are to follow and who is with us to the very end of the age. And so union with Christ, dear friends, in baptism is not only the remission of our sins, but even more fundamentally than that, are being grafted into the I am. Into the I am who came to be with us from, from the very beginning of the story now to the very end of it. The one we were made for who has adopted us into his family. And so if you've been following along in our sermon series devotional, you have anticipated this already. If you see it in your bulletin, you see where our sermon this morning is meant to go. And that is this question, what is baptism? And, and friends, as we think about this question, don't hear it merely as, well, here's a question for us merely for more information. And once you've got this covered, then we can move on. This is really a question of worship. When we rehearse to ourselves the facts about baptism, we are rehearsing to ourselves the facts of our own redemption. Baptism really is just the story of our redemption, of who and whose we are in Christ. It helps us to remember that we are redeemed, and more than that, grafted into Jesus, and more than that, adopted into his family. And so that is the sacrament of the new covenant in which Christ has ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit to be a sign and seal of being grafted into himself, of remissions, remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his spirit, and of adoption into his family and resurrection to everlasting life. By this, people are baptized, or the people baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. So a question for us as we consider these things. What role does your baptism play in how you think about and tell and evaluate the story of your life? Dear friends, we must see how closely baptism ties in with our understanding of our own salvation. Sometimes we can struggle with this, can't we? Because even if we have been baptized, not as infants, but as professing believers, it can be a hard thing to remember. It almost can be for us a sort of one-and-done kind of experience, can't it? 
sort of a ritualistic thing that we do, and we know we're supposed to do it, but it's hard to hold fast to its meaning. And so what does it really mean to improve upon our baptisms? I think that's why it's so important that in the New Testament, the first real explicit indication that Jesus has given baptism to his church is in the context of Matthew 28. And it's in the context of Jesus explaining more completely by these solemn and joyful words who we really are as his beloved people, who he really is as the risen Christ, who he really is as the Son of Man who has all authority in heaven on earth, in heaven and on earth. And so as we think about our baptisms, what we're thinking about is redemption. What we're thinking about is who we've been made to be by the promises of the gospel. We're to remember this and hold fast to this, to see that we really have arrived in Jesus' kingdom because of what he has done for us, because of who he is. And when we struggle to think, how should we approach God? How should we say this divine name? This name that the people heard it in Exodus chapter 3, and the mountains quaked. And they were so afraid that they had to say to Moses, you mediate between us and God. We can't deal with this. We don't know how to approach this God. He's too holy. He's too big. It's too scary. So that now Jesus comes to us and says, here is how you are, here is how you are to pronounce this name. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what you are baptized into. The one that you are formerly so afraid of the one that you are formerly so worried that you would not be able to please, has come to you in the person of his son, and he's given you this name, and he will be with you always to the very end of the age. That is what our baptisms baptize us into. That is what we are remembering always. And so don't worry too much. Don't hold it too much in your heart if you can't remember the specifics of the day you were baptized. That is not the substance of the thing. They're merely the garments of it. The substance of the thing, what it means for your life, Think of Matthew chapter 28. Think of Jesus. Think of what he reveals to you as your Savior. And remember his words, I am with you always to the end of the age. So our application is very simple. Matthew chapter 28 teaches us that Jesus has given us baptism to visibly teach us who and whose we are as the new covenant people of God. It may seem strange to you that we would have a sermon about that baptism and go immediately from that into the Lord's table. But these two things are very complementary. Because although baptism is the initiatory rite, it helps us to know that we really have arrived in God's kingdom, we really are folded into the promises of God, the Lord's table is, we might say, the nourishing rite. It helps us to grow up in this reality. Just as when we were born, we were given a birth certificate, and that helps us to know this is where we were born, in this hospital, in this country. So baptism helps us to know this is who, we, who and whose we are, as Jesus' own. But we also, as we grow up, have to have people who invest in us, parents who clothe and feed us and house us, and other friends, teachers, and eventually as we get older, friends who help us to know what it means to be an adult in the world. And in the same way, Jesus gives us this table to show us this is how we're to grow up in the knowledge of who and whose we are. This is how we're to be in the world, people who feast upon Jesus, who come to his table and find here faith to help us to grow in our understanding of who we are. And so that is why when we come to this table, we don't merely celebrate a meal as good as it is. We don't merely celebrate the fact that we've been folded into the family of God. We celebrate our redemption in Christ. And that's why it is so necessary for us in those times when we are feeling doubtful, like the disciples felt doubtful. That's why it's so necessary for us in those times when we're really struggling. We're making the effort to forgive, but it's hard. 
That's why it's so necessary for us in those times. And we're really struggling to see what does being a Christian mean for us on a Wednesday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon? This table helps us to grow in this reality. It helps us to know that the gospel really is for us, us individually, and us as a family. And that's why Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, a very common element that he knew we would have with us always, and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body, which is given for you. Take, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant, the thing we've been waiting for and longing for. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you which means we need that new covenant life. We need to know who Jesus is. And he gives us this so that we would see it visibly represented, who and whose we are. And so I invite you this morning, as you take these elements, don't take them merely as uh, something that you do. It's just part of the Christian rite, and, and you have to do it because it's part of being a Christian. Take them as it really is, reality, to grow in your understanding of what your baptism has done for you. So meditate on these things as the picture of the gospel that they really are. I'll invite the elders to come up who will be helping to serve the elements. And as they do so, just a few instructions for us. We'll pass two trays down each aisle. And one of those trays, of course, has the juice cups. And in those cups, you'll see that there's a wafer on top of some of those. If you'd prefer just to take that element, you can do so. For the rest of you, you can take both the cup and the bread. And we'll hold, on these, hold these together. And then at the end, we'll stand together and partake as a family. But before we do that, let me pray for our meal. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're grateful that you, given, you have given us this table. Lord, we're grateful for the way in which it pictures our salvation in Jesus and helps us to grow in that reality. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see what is really going on in these elements, that you would give us eyes to see what really has been made true of us because we've been baptized into the faith, baptized into Jesus. Lord, help us to see the truth of his statement. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, that he will be with us to the very end of the age. Lord, nourish these truths in our heart as we partake of these elements together. We need your help to do it. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.